Section 69 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Duchepec. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. Section 69. The Pope, Christ's Vicar. Erroneous View The primacy of the Bishop of Rome is not founded on Scripture and is simply the result of a struggle of supremacy in which the Roman Pontiff won. Catholic Doctrine The primacy of the Bishop of Rome is identical with the primacy conferred on St. Peter. In other words, the Bishop of Rome is the successor of St. Peter in the primacy. That St. Peter received the primacy or supreme headship in the Church is clearly indicated in Scripture. That the Bishop of Rome is the successor of St. Peter in the primacy has been the constant and universal teaching of the Church. It is proved, moreover, by theological arguments based upon the nature and constitution of the Church. There has been no struggle for supremacy by the Bishop of Rome as the Church in the beginning and throughout its history has acknowledged the supreme dominion of the See of Rome. The arguments in favor of these positions we shall proceed to develop. St. Peter Constituted Head of the Church Our first witness to the primacy of St. Peter is St. John the Evangelist. In the first chapter of his Gospel, he relates that when Andrew had seen and conversed with the Lord, he brought his brother Simon to him. And Jesus, looking upon him, said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is interpreted Peter. The Lord thus gave Simon a new name, Cephas, an Aramaic word meaning rock. The significance of this change of name though certainly very striking, would perhaps remain somewhat vague had we not the following well-known passage in St. Matthew. And he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that the Son of Man is? But they said, Some John the Baptist, and others some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answering said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hath revealed it to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here, on the occasion of Peter's confession of faith, the Lord promises to make him the very foundation of his church, or in other words, the principle of its stability and of its resistance to the powers of evil, the gates of hell. The significance of these words cannot easily be exaggerated. 
They are much stronger words than any used to set forth the greatness of the role played by any eminent man in the affairs of the world. When we say on one that he was the head and front of some great undertaking, or of another that he was the soul of some great enterprise, we are using words of high commendation. But how they dwindle in significance when we think of one who was made the very foundation, the rock on which was built the superstructure of a great institution of worldwide influence, which was to confer ineffable benefits upon mankind, even to eternity. But what is more significant still, Peter's prerogative is in some sense to be perpetual, for the church was to withstand the assaults of hell to the end of time. Its foundation, as laid by Christ, must remain forever. We shall see later in what sense Peter is the perpetual foundation of the church. The idea of the primacy is still further developed in other parts of the Gospels. Let the reader weigh well the following passage from St. John, describing a scene that took place after the resurrection. It will exhibit the primacy, not as an honorary office, but as the office of one who is commissioned to instruct, guide, and govern the entire church, pastors, and people. The scene is laid on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, where the risen Lord had prepared a simple repast for his apostles against their return from their labors at the net. When therefore they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, lovest me more than these? He said to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? He said to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said to him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. He said to him, Feed my sheep. The first thing to be noted about this passage is that St. Peter is singled out in a special manner and is separately addressed. His Lord draws from him a triple profession of love. And now, after this special expression of devotion, what special mark of divine favor is going to be bestowed upon him? Nothing less than the tending and feeding of Christ's flock, the whole of his flock, sheep and lambs alike, or in other words, the supreme ruling of Christ's church, pastors as well as people. The expressions, my sheep and my lambs, are sufficiently explicit. They can mean nothing but the entire flock. And although the other apostles also were to tend the flock of Christ, their commission to do so is nowhere so significantly worded or so expressive of universal power. And then if we consider the incidents narrated in the above extract, we may ask with perfect justice, 
Is it possible that our Lord could have given such signal prominence to St. Peter in this scene, and drawn from him so special a protestation of love and devotion, without intending to confer upon him by the words, Feed my sheep, special and exclusive powers in the government of the Church? If any doubts remain in the reader's mind, let him compare the passage we are considering with one quoted above, and ask himself if the one does not explain and supplement the other, and both together point unmistakably to the primacy. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We can now understand the full import of the words reported by St. Luke. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and thou being once converted, confirm thy brethren. Peter is here constituted the mainstay of the faith of God's church, a prerogative which is one of the essential features of the primacy. But the text upon which we have based this demonstration of the primacy of Peter are not the only ones bearing on his peculiar position in the church. Passages abound in which St. Peter is brought into prominence, and these can have but one meaning when interpreted in the light of what we have seen. Wherever we find a list of the apostles' names, Peter's is the first. St. Matthew begins his list by these words, the first Simon, who is called Peter, or the rock, intimating in all probability that he is named first because he was the rock or foundation of Christ's church. Saints Mark and Luke also, in their respective lists, remind us that the surname of Peter had been added to the apostles' ordinary name. Besides these passages, there are numerous texts relating to incidents in the Gospels in which Peter is especially conspicuous. The following, for example, And Simon and they that were with him, Peter and they that were with him, Peter and the apostles answering. Peter was the recipient of many marks of favor from his Lord. His house was Jesus' place of abode at Capernaum. From Peter's fishing boat, the Lord addressed the multitude. At his master's bidding, Peter paid the coin of tribute, miraculously provided for himself and his Lord, as though the master identified himself with his disciple. Peter was the first of the apostles to see the risen Savior. After the resurrection, the angel at the sepulcher, speaking in the name of the Lord, told the holy women to go tell his disciples and Peter. After our Lord's ascension, Peter's behavior is altogether in keeping with the exceptional position he occupied during our Lord's lifetime. He presided at the election of Matthias. It was Peter that inaugurated the ministry of the Word on Pentecost Day. At the first assembly of the apostles and the ancients at Jerusalem, it was Peter's opinion that prevailed for the settlement of an important question. The evidence, then, is abundant, superfluously abundant, 
for the fact that St. Peter held a unique position in respect to the other apostles, one indeed that if all the texts be well weighed and compared, must seem to be nothing short of a primacy of authority, identical with that of Catholic dogma. The strange thing is that any other meaning but the one we have indicated should have been taken out of the texts we have cited. To suppose that one who is seen to exercise on many occasions a primacy of some sort, one who is declared by his divine master to be the rock on which the church is built, one who is made the bulwark of the faith for the rest of Christ's disciples, one who is constituted the feeder of Christ's entire flock, to suppose that such as he possessed no more than an honorary primacy, hardly more than a permanent chairmanship, is to show a degree of skepticism which is rarely exhibited in the weighing of evidence in purely secular matters. As the subject of the primacy is one of sovereign importance, we would ask any non-Catholic inquirer who may light on these pages to give the maturest consideration to the texts and facts we have cited from the sacred books before reading any controversial matter on this particular topic. Nay, we should much prefer that the non-Catholic reader should stop at this point and not read another line of this article on the primacy if he has not taken the trouble to make a comparative study of the passages cited above and endeavored to view each in the light shed upon it by the others. Speaking generally, we would add that a little at a time, but that little well considered, is an indispensable rule for those who wish to be solidly convinced. Part 2. The Pope, the Successor of St. Peter in the Primacy And now the connecting link between the primacy of Peter and the primacy of the present reigning pontiff, Benedict XV. In the first place, let us cast a rapid glance at the primacy as conceived and realized in the Catholic Church today. The Roman Catholic Church is the only church possessing a unity in which any degree corresponds to the ideal which was in the mind of the Divine Master. An ideal for the realization of which he prayed, and of course, effectually, to his Heavenly Father. And not for them do I pray, but for them also who through their word shall believe in me, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The prayer of Christ must have been heard, and that it has been heard is witnessed by the unity of the Church in communion with Rome, a unity which grows ever more wonderful with the succeeding ages. But what is the secret of such unity? Can there be more than one answer to the question? Ask our enemies how it is that Catholics in every clime have but one way of thinking and acting when the rest of the world is in constant ferment of conflicting opinions. They will tell you that it is because Catholics are Pope-ridden. The epithet is insulting, 
but it contains a kernel of truth. It is precisely the Pope's primacy that preserves unity of faith and worship among almost 300 million Catholics who are found in every clime and represent every face and variety of human existence. Imagine what the Catholic Church would be today without the primacy. A body without a head inevitably tends to dissolution. The larger a social organization and the more varied its membership, the greater the need of a center of authority. In the case of any human society, to provide an internal principle of cohesion is deemed but ordinary human wisdom. God, it is true, has infinite resources at his command, and the primacy is not the only conceivable means by which he might have provided for the unification of the church. But he does, as a matter of fact, adapt himself to our human ways, and that he has done so in the organizing of his church is proved by the fact that on the one hand, the actual exercise of a primacy has a wonderful effect in the unifying of the church, whilst on the other, the absence of the primacy in bodies designated as Christians is everywhere marked by a tendency to division and disintegration. The necessity of a central authority may be conceded by some of our opponents, but the necessity of its being vested in a single individual may not be granted so easily. Those who deny the primacy of the Pope would not always be so unwilling to accept the decrees of a general council. But a little reflection will show that general councils, as ordinary instruments of government in a worldwide religion, would prove exceedingly impracticable. It is now 40 years since the Vatican Council was obliged to discontinue its sittings. And meanwhile, a hydra-headed heresy known as modernism has sprung up, against which the world be well-nigh helpless had it no refuge but in a general council. The much-needed exercise of primarchal power by the late sovereign pontiff in rooting out this heresy of heresies is but one illustration of the part played by the Roman pontiffs from the beginning in their preservation of Catholic doctrine. Many of these truths are still retained and cherished by most of our separated brethren. And a serious consideration of this fact should beget not only gratitude to the Roman pontiffs, but the conviction that the primarchal authority of the popes is not an accident of history, but the result of a special providence. No less objectionable would be the ordinary government of the Church by a permanent committee or commission elected by and representing a general council, for this would be handing over of the Church to an oligarchy which would have no authorization either in Scripture or in tradition. The Church was to have been governed either by the bishops or by the Pope or by both together but not by an arbitrary constituted bureau. Moreover, in any council or governing committee, 
the presiding officer must be vested with considerable authority. And when we consider the important matters that might be affected by his rulings, touching as they would at one point or another, directly or indirectly divine revelation itself, we can see the necessity of such an officer's possessing primarial authority of the highest order. In point of fact, at all general councils of the Church, it was deemed necessary that the meetings should be presided over either by the Pope or by his specially appointed legate. We are now within measurable distance of the connecting link between the primacy of the present Pope and the primacy of Peter, but we must let the argument develop itself further. We now see that a primate is necessary. The primacy of one is needed for the unity of the many. But in the mind of the divine founder of the Church's life and ministry, therefore the primacy must always have been, and in the future must be, absolutely necessary for the preservation of essential unity. Moreover, it is not only necessary in the abstract, but must have been realized as a fact in history. For unless we are willing to admit that the unity of the Church has been destroyed, which would prove that the prayers of the Son of God for unity were but vain and idle words that never reached the throne of God, or that the gates of hell have prevailed against the Church, contrary to the Lord's assurance, and that consequently He has ceased to be present among His disciples, contrary to His explicit promise, unless we are willing to believe that the realization of long ages of prophecy and the culmination of the work of providence is a jumble of conflicting doctrines and the flock dispersed because the shepherd is stricken. We must admit that the church has not been without a sovereign ruler, one who is such both in fact and in right, one who has been invested from on high with sufficient authority to preserve the unity which the Divine Master had so much at heart. But who can such a primate be, if not the Bishop of Rome? He is the only bishop who has laid claim to the title. He is accepted as primate by much the largest body of Christians, and the Roman pontiffs have claimed and exercised the rights of primate from time immemorial. Moreover, the fruits of the primacy are shown in a wonderful unity which brings in its train peace, order, and a single-minded devotion to God's glory. Finally, as this long succession of primates must have had a beginning, as there must have been one who was the first of the primates, who can possibly be the first, if not he whom we have seen appointed the ruler of the church from the beginning. The popes, therefore, are the successors of Peter, who continues to be the foundation of Christ's church on the persons of those who have successively occupied his see. And indeed, 
The continuance of the office after the death of St. Peter seems to be implied in the words, Upon this rock I will build my church, for the foundation must remain if the building is to endure, and Peter must still be regarded as the foundation of the church inasmuch as he has transmitted his powers to his successors. And the same significance attached to the words, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For to withstand the assaults of the demons, the church must always retain its firm position on its original foundation. Thus the latest century of Christianity is connected with the first, and yet the distance between them, as measured by the lapse of years, is so great that our readers will desire to see how they are connected by the chain of historical events. They would like to see the primacy in action during all those centuries, or at least during the first five, a period which is regarded by most Christians of the present day as one of the great purity of faith and worship. We shall, therefore, exhibit in brief the witness of the fathers of the primeval church, both to the fact and to the right of primacy as exercised by the Roman See. In the first century, and in the lifetime of St. John the Evangelist, a schism having broken out at Corinth, the Corinthians appealed to St. Clement, Bishop of Rome, who wrote the schismatics a powerful letter enjoining submission to the authorities. The following remarkable passage is commended to the attention of the reader. If any disobey the words spoken by God through us, let them know that they will entangle themselves in transgression and no small danger. But we shall be clear from the sin. You will cause us joy and exultation if obeying the things written by us through the Holy Spirit. This remarkable epistle of Pope Clements is mentioned favorably by St. Irenaeus. We know from the testimony of Eusebius that this was read in the churches. This, he says, we know was publicly read in many of the churches, both in former times and in our own. Dionysius, an earlier witness who in the year 171 was created bishop of this very city of Corinth, testifies to the same custom. At each of the four first general councils, those namely of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. Legates of the Pope, especially appointed for the purpose, presided. As regards the Council of Ephesus, nothing can be more manifest than the action taken by that council against the heresiarch Nestorius was simply prescribed by Pope Celestine, who in his letter to the council says that he has sent his legates to be present at what is done and to execute what has been previously ordained by us. Acknowledgement of the Pope's primacy appears at every turn in the proceeding of the council. As for instance, when Fermius, Bishop of Cappadocia said, the Holy Apostolic See of the Most Holy Bishop Celestine has already 
by the letter sent to the most religious bishop Cyril, prescribed the sentence and the order to be observed in the present proceedings. We have adhered to this and have put that decree into execution, pronouncing the canonical and apostolical judgment on Nestorius. In the third session, the words of Philip, the papal legate, which were received with approval by the assembled fathers, show that the papal power was believed to have its roots in the primacy of Peter. It is doubtful to none, yea, rather, it has been known to all ages, that the holy and most blessed Peter, the prince and head of the apostles, the pillar of faith and foundation of the Catholic Church, received from our Lord Jesus Christ the keys of the kingdom, and to him was power given to bind and to loose sins, who even until now and always both lives and exercises judgment in his successors. Wherefore our holy and most blessed Pope Celestine, the bishop, his successor in order and holder of his place, has sent us to the Holy Synod as representative of his person. As therefore Nestorius, the author of this new impiety, has not only allowed the term fixed by the apostolic seat to pass by, but also a much longer period of time, the sentence upon him stands ratified by a decree of all the churches. Wherefore let Nestorius know that he is cut off from communion with the priesthood of the Catholic Church. The sovereign position of the Pope is no less strongly evidenced by the proceeding of the Council of Chalcedon, composed of about 600 bishops, the largest number up to that time assembled. The Council was convened by papal authority. Among other testimonies to this fact is the declaration of the bishops of Messiah in a letter addressed to Marcion, the emperor of Constantinople. Many bishops are assembled at Chalcedon by command of the Roman Pontiff Leo, who is truly the head of the bishops. The act by which in this council Pope Leo deposed Dioscurus, Bishop of Alexandria, was preceded by a declaration of the papal legate Pascasinus, from which we extract the following passage. Whereupon Leo the most holy and blessed Archbishop of the great and elder Rome has by the agency of ourselves and the present Synod, in conjunction with the thrice-blessed and all-honored Peter, who is the rock and foundation of the Catholic Church and basis of the Orthodox faith, deprived him of the priestly dignity in every priestly function. Accordingly, this holy and great synod decrees the provisions of the canon against the aforesaid Dioscurus. The sentence which thus emanated from the sovereign pontiff was signed by all the members of the council. Before drawing up a confession of faith, the council ordered several documents to be read, among others, a letter from Pope Leo. On hearing the letter, the fathers exclaimed, This is the faith of the apostles. We all believe this. 
The Orthodox believe this. Anathema to whom who does not believe it. Peter has spoken thus by the mouth of Leo. That the popes of the first centuries frequently asserted their prerogatives is acknowledged by many Protestants, but they quietly assume that such assertion was but the beginning of an evil which culminated in the decree of the Vatican Council. But surely, the facts already brought to the reader's attention prove that if the claims of the popes were false, the acquiescence of the bishops must have committed the whole church to an error in doctrine and in practice. And yet we are dealing with a period which is universally regarded as standing in no need of reform. That the See of Rome was regarded as the final court of appeal might be proved by numerous cases brought to it for decision. We shall confine ourselves to a case associated with the name of the greatest of the doctors of the West, St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo in Africa. The bishops of Africa, having assembled in council, first at Carthage and afterwards at Milevi, and having condemned the doctrines of Pelagius on grace, sought a confirmation of their sentence by the See of Rome. For that purpose, they wrote to Pope Innocent a letter from Carthage and a second one from Milevi, and in both they acknowledged the superior authority of the Apostolic See. It is our judgment, they say, that by the mercy of the Lord God, who deigns both to direct your consultation and to hear your prayers, the authors of these perverse and pernicious opinions will yield more easily to the authority of your holiness, which is derived from the authority of the Holy Scriptures. What authority of Scripture can be referred to if not the authority of the texts we have quoted in favor of St. Peter's primacy? In a third letter written by five of the African bishops, one of whom was St. Augustine, the writers addressed the Pope in these words. Our purpose is to have it proved by you that our rivulet springs from the same foundation head as your abounding river, and to be consoled by your rescript in the consciousness of participating one grace. But our story does not end here. Pope Innocent answered the letter of the African bishops by an epistle which asserts the necessity of papal confirmation for the decrease of local councils. And it is in reference to this letter that St. Augustine, writing to Paulinus, Bishop of Nola, says, Pope Innocent of blessed memory answered all that we said as was right and as became the prelate of the apostolic see. It was in reference to the same decision that those other more famous words of St. Augustine were used. Two councils have been sent to the Apostolic See, and an answer from it has been received. The case is ended. May the error itself be ended. Our readers cannot be surprised that the Pope's decisions were regarded as final when they glance at the testimonies furnished by the writings of the Fathers in favor of precisely that conception 
of the papal prerogative which is conveyed by Catholic teaching today. The following passages are specimens. Saint Irenaeus, A.D. 178. With this Church of Rome, on account of her superior, or according to another reading, her more powerful headship, it is necessary that every other church that is the faithful everywhere dispersed should be in communion. The opponents of the papacy are keenly aware of the value of the testimony of Irenaeus, who was a pupil of the immediate disciples of the apostles, and hence anti-papal ingenuity has been exercised to the full in the endeavor to wrest the above sentence from its true meaning. They have fastened upon single words in the test and have attempted to show in each case that the meaning is not necessarily pro-papal. But the question is settled in the treatise. Against certain heretical opinions, the writer appeals to the traditional teaching of the bishops, who in succession have ruled the several parts of the church founded by the apostles, but as he remarks, as it would take too long in a volume such as this to enumerate the successive occupants of the Roman See, whose successive rulers, from the time of the apostle he names. With this church, on account of her superior or more powerful headship, it is necessary that every other church should be in communion. Evidently, he regards the Church of Rome as the standard church in doctrine. All others must agree with it. There is no possible interpretation of this dictum of Irenaeus that will make the words equally applicable to any other church. If this is not the primacy of the Roman bishops, what can it be? But Irenaeus confirms the interpretation we have given his words by referring with commendation to the decision of Pope Clement in the case of the Corinthian schism, a case in which the Corinthians themselves had appealed to Rome and in which they had received an answer in a tone of authority which perhaps has few parallels in papal utterances. An extract from the Pope's letter has been given above. Under this, Clement then, writes Irenaeus, there having happened no small dissension among the brethren who were at Corinth, the church which is at Rome wrote a most powerful letter to the Corinthians, gathering them together to peace, and repairing their faith, and announcing the tradition which it had so recently received from the apostles. St. Cyprian, A.D. 250 After all this, they dare to sail and to carry letters from schismatics and profane persons to the chair of Peter and to the leading church, whence the unity of the priesthood has its origins. Nor do they consider that they, to whom they are carrying letters, are the same Romans whose faith is praised in the preaching of the apostles, and to whom heretical perfidy can have no access. The distorting process has been applied to these words also, but the short passage so repeatedly emphasizes one and the same thing, and its parts so effectually support one another 
that all attempts to wring the Roman primacy out of it have proved abortive. In his epistles, the saint calls the Roman church the root, the mother, the parent stem of Catholic unity. Saint Gregory Nazianzen, AD 370. The faith of Rome was of old and is now right, binding the whole West by the saving word, as is just in her who presides over all, reverencing the whole harmonious teaching of God. Saint Optatus of Milevi, about A.D. 370. You cannot deny that you are aware that in the city of Rome upon Peter, first of all, was conferred the episcopal seat in which he sat, who was the head of all the apostles, whence he was called Cephas the Rock, so that in this one chair unity might be preserved by all, lest the other apostle might each lay claim to a chair of his own. He then gives a list of the successors of Peter down to the reigning pontiff, with whom we and the whole world besides are united in the bond of communion by the interchange of letters of peace. St. Ambrose died A.D. 391. Speaking of one who had arrived after shipwreck in a strange place, he says, He called the bishop to him, and not deeming any grace true which was not of the true faith, he inquired of him whether he agreed with the Catholic bishops, that is, with the Roman Church. From the Church of Rome, the rites of venerable communion flow unto all. We have recognized in the letter of your holiness the vigilance of the Good Shepherd faithfully guarding the door of the fold entrusted to you, and with pious solicitude watching over the fold of Christ, and thus deserving that the flock of Christ should hear and follow you. Saint Jerome, A.D. 376 When the church of Antioch was rent by the rival claims of Vitalis, Milicius, and Paulinus to the episcopal throne, Saint Jerome wrote thus to Pope Damascus for the settlement of the dispute. I, following no one as first but Christ, am joined in communion with your blessedness, that is, with the chair of Peter. Upon that rock I know that the church is built. Whosoever eats the lamb outside that house is profane. If one be not in the ark of Noah, he will perish when the flood prevails. I know not Vitalis. Militius I reject. I am a stranger to Paulinus. Whosoever gathers not with you scatters. That is, he who is not of Christ is of Antichrist. In another letter on the same subject, he clearly regards communion with the See of Rome as the touchstone of orthodoxy. If anyone is united with the See of Peter, he is mine. Militius, Vitalis, and Paulinus say they adhere to you. If only one made the assertion, I could believe him. As it is, one or other or all three lie. 
Hence I conjure your blessedness, that you, who are the successor of the apostles in dignity, may be their successor in merit, and that you would inform me by letter with which bishop in Syria I should hold communion. St. Peter Chrysologus died about A.D. 450. Blessed Peter, who lives and presides in his own see, gives the true faith to those who seek it. For we in our solicitude for truth and faith cannot, without the consent of the Roman Church, hear causes of faith. St. John Chrysostom, Patriarch of Constantinople, died A.D. 407. Theophilus of Alexandria, having attempted to usurp the see of Constantinople, St. Chrysostom sent an embassy composed of four bishops and two deacons to Pope Innocent I to obtain a redress of his grievances. Lest, he says, such great confusion should become general, I beseech you to write to the effect that these irregular proceedings, which have been carried on in our absence and which were based upon ex parte information, whilst we have not declined a trial, are of no effect, as they are in fact null in themselves, and that these illegal measures shall be subjected to the penalty prescribed by the ecclesiastical laws. The Bishops of Spain, A.D. 440 The Most Blessed Peter, the supremacy of whose vicar, as it is eminent, is no less to be feared and loved by all. Later centuries than the fifth, there is no need of exploring for witnesses to the primacy, as all the world admits. We have given but specimens of the language and practice of Christian antiquity as exhibited by the writings of the fathers of the Church, and have said nothing of the abundant proofs of the general recognition of the Roman primacy found in the utterances of emperors and of historians, orators, and poets. A circumstance on which we would lay emphasis is that the authorities we have quoted regard the prerogative of the popes as identical with the prerogative of St. Peter. Now it is impossible to reconcile this universal belief with the alleged struggle of the popes for supremacy. Why struggle? when from the beginning their rights were acknowledged as having a divine source. It has been a common practice with anti-Catholic controversialists to leave unnoticed the positive and explicit testimonies cited by Catholics in favor of the Roman primacy and confine their attention to a comparatively small number of passages in the Fathers which seem, at first sight and apart from their context, to tell against the papal claims. But even if the Protestant interpretation of these latter passages were correct, what value can these testimonies have when confronted with the cloud witnesses to the Roman primacy? Both in the East and in the West, whose language concerning the primacy is at least as clear, as explicit, and as strong as that which we have cited above. Where shall we find an expression of the Church's mind, if not in the utterances of the great majority 
of her representative teachers and in the acts of her general councils. In all cases, however, in which an early authority is cited against the papal primacy, either the circumstances under which the words were uttered disprove the Protestant interpretation of them, or the words cited against the Catholic position can be matched from the same authorities by expressions which are clearly pro-papal. When St. Augustine, for instance, is quoted as saying that St. Peter, when he received them for the whole church, the truth is that St. Augustine is opposing not papal claims, but novation error. For the novation heretics held that the power to remit sins was personal and exclusive privilege of St. Peter's, which, of course, St. Augustine denied, as all Catholics do today. An exclusive privilege of that kind was never claimed by the Roman pontiffs. St. Cyprian, who is regarded by Protestants as favoring their side of the controversy because of his undoubted opposition to the reigning pontiff in the matter of the rebaptism of heretics, clearly and explicitly records his belief in the Roman primacy in different parts of his writings. Besides the quotations from him given above, we shall add here the testimony of one of his letters to his having acknowledged in practice the sovereign jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. When Marcian of Arles fell into heresy, Cyprian, at the request of the bishops of the province, wrote to Pope Stephen to request him to send letters by which Marcian, having been excommunicated, another may be substituted in his place. If this was not an exercise of sovereign and universal jurisdiction, the terms have no meaning. Acknowledgement of the Pope's authority was so universal, and what is more, was made so often by the bishops assembled in general council that it must be regarded as an expression of the mind of the Church. And to suppose that the Church was in error on so vital a point, and that too, in the first centuries of its existence is to suppose that the assurances of the Son of God had come to naught. The idea, moreover, runs counter to the general conviction of Christendom. When finally we consider how magnificently the ideal of unity, which was in the mind of the divine founder of the Church, has been realized through the exercise of the primacy, we can only conclude that this is the finger of God. And it should now be more difficult to imagine that the primacy is an illusion than to regard as conclusive that evidence we have adduced in its favor. End of section 69. The Pope, Christ's Vicar. Recording by Tony Ducepec.